Welcome to the Peace Building Podcast. Join host Susan Coleman as she interviews today's most creative, courageous, and sometimes outrageous mediators, coaches, entrepreneurs, and out-of-the-box thinkers whose work, whether intended or not, is building peace. Tune in for 45 minutes of pure inspiration as we explore the best stories, the best practices, the best ideas of a new world emerging. Here's your host, global consultant, coach, facilitator, and mediator, Susan Coleman. So, Gabrielle, hello. Hi, it's Susan. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here, Susan. Nice talking to you. How are you? You too. I'm great, and I'm so glad to have you on the show. Uh, I have here with me Gabrielle Kluk, um, who is someone I have known now uh, for... She's a client and friend and colleague, and I've known you now for how long, Gabrielle, since we first met each other? Maybe maybe four or five years ago? Some, five, something. Six, Susan. Six, six years. Yeah, 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 because we wow. met when I got uh, appointed as a regional ombudsman with the United Nations, and we met in New York when I was there That's right. to meet my yeah. other newly appointed colleagues as well. Yeah, yeah, that's, we met. That's yeah. right. Briefly, so where am I? I mean, I... Time. I see these beautiful uh, African masks behind you. Mm-hmm. Um, where am I finding you today? It's, or um, tonight? It's really, I know it's today <laughs> for me. It's tonight for you. So that's right. Are you we at home a, or are you at the office? I'm at home at this point, Sunday evening uh, yeah. here, and it's just gotten dark. And it's um, 7.30 almost in the evening. And you find me in Uganda. And you in, find me very close to the equator. In yeah, Entebbe. In, Inte- in, in, Entebbe, in Entebbe, Uganda. Yeah. Right. And I and I think it's been it's the rainy season. Is it the right now? No, it's actually the dry season. But we had a huge thunderstorm and rainstorm this day, <laughs> which is unusual. So climate change is also affecting Uganda. Is yeah, it? Yeah. So oh, yeah, things definitely. are happening that are not predict not oh, yeah. not yeah. within the norm. Yeah, if you listen yeah. to the locals, definitely. But even for me, I've been here now four years. Yeah, yeah, this is unusual. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's this time true. of year, other in the rainy season, sure, almost every day, but not right. now. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, I remember the camps. Uh, well, that's Sudan, but the mud issue is mm. really intense, just the amount yeah. of mud that you have to deal with. Mm-hmm. So, folks, I have with me uh, Gabrielle Kluk, as I said. she um, has, She's in transition at the moment. She has been the regional ombudsman and mediator for the Sudan region uh, of the United Nations Secretariat, and she's uh, been based, first she was based in Khartoum, and then she was based in, and then she has been based in Entebbe, Uganda, and now she's on her way to Rome, uh, poor her, um, to work, uh, become the ombudsman for the World Food Program in Rome. Mm-hmm. And um, she has, Gabrielle, during, during the time that um, the chapter that I have known her, which is while well, she's regional ombudsman in uh, the Sudan region, uh, she, uh, or maybe, no, maybe this is the whole time that you have been working as a regional ombudsman, whether it was Khartoum or Sudan, uh, you have worked with ten, about 10,000 employees um, deployed in over 100 duty stations of the various UN peacekeeping missions in Darfur, South Sudan, Abye, is that how you pronounce Abye? Abye, yes, that's right. Abye, yeah. uh, Burundi, and Uganda. Mm-hmm. Um she, just, she has a master's of science degree in business administration with an emphasis on organizational change 
and transformation. Uh, basically, she describes her self-described mission is to help people create more harmonious work environments and thus more impactful organizations. And then I have to add, because, uh, you know, Gabrielle is a seriously interesting, intrepid person. Um, she started off as a ballerina, I believe. Was that, is that a fair? Or, or? Nah, not professionally at all, but I, but I was really smitten of ballet and it was the biggest thing in my life. And, you know, and, and yes, I wanted to become a professional dancer. That didn't happen. I became a, uh, semi, a semi-professional flamenco dancer, though. And, uh, yeah, so, but I've always loved dance. Yeah. Was that in the Netherlands? In the uh, Netherlands. That? Yeah. In the Netherlands, which is where you're from. That's right? where I'm from. Yeah. That's where mm-hmm. you're from. And, um, but she, um, she says she appreciates exploring boundaries both at work and privately and has been a ballet, a flamenco dancer, a skydiver, a backpacker, a mountain climber, a motorcyclist, uh, a, a yogini. Uh, a, a, a deep sea diver, an off-piste skier, and also is a, is, is, well, is a, is a, is a, a pilot, but is, you're taking flying lessons these days. Mm-hmm, that's <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. I'm not sure so how I you're going to I hope to very soon get my uh, private uh, pilot license, yeah, and then to be able to go for, you know, a trip, a trip in the air. Yes. Are you going to be able to continue doing that in Rome? Yeah, definitely. I've already checked out. There is an airfield uh, north uh, of, of the old city, so okay. in Rome itself, okay. and there is a, a flying school there. So, yeah, I have already emailed them and definitely will continue. Yeah. may not be quite as much fun as flying in Uganda, but... Well, I'm know. not so too worried. Italy is a beautiful country too, with the yeah. the mountains and the sea, and uh, and if you know, and, and if you can fly uh, around Rome, uh, it's beautiful. You know, I yeah. learned flying here uh, at Lake Victoria, where Entebbe is located, and it has beautiful inlets and islands and peninsulas, and so I flew over those to learn the flying. And so yeah, so that's and that was been African bush flying as they call it, and so. Now I will go from my Muran um, runway to the tarmac runway, so it gets a bit of more civilization, if you like to. Yep, it's, and uh, I, I like your worldview. In our, in our pre-interview, you know, I was I was uh, uh, bemoaning. I have a twenty-year-old son, as you know, who is um, pretty intrepid himself, and he's now about to go climb Denali, which is twenty thousand feet. It's the largest. I think it's the largest. I believe it's the largest peak in North America for sure. I don't think mm-hmm. it's in the Western Hemisphere. I think maybe forget which one is the largest in South America. But um, but you said you know it's you know I'm like feeling scared for my son. And you said, listen, Susan, you know, like in all the you know jumping out of planes, motorcycle riding, going into Darfur, going into South Sudan, blah 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 blah. The thing, the time that I hurt myself is when I walked out of my office and I tripped in a pothole. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely true. I'm not, and yeah, or walk around the garden and tripped in a pothole. Or yeah, right, right. absolutely. That's 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 when I, uh, you know, had my foot in in braces and was on crutches. But so, uh, you know, you can worry what you like, but I think people want to do what they want to do, need to do what they need to do, and 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 that's for everyone different. But don't worry because uh, for me, my only accidents happened happened walking. And not during any of the other activities that I've ever done. Right. 
So now when you go into the World Food Program, it also mm-hmm. sounds like you're going to be, I mean, you've been going into really some pretty deadly conflict zones for the mm-hmm. last 13, 13 years, I believe. You've been mm-hmm. in... in um, yeah, even in, longer, because before that, since 1999, I started working for the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which okay. America is also a, a member state and contributing member state. Um, I worked in, uh, from, in Vienna, uh, in Austria, but uh, regularly visited Kosovo. So, okay. yeah, I was at in, the time in yeah, Kosovo so, two mm-hmm. weeks after the Gurkhas. A lot of people can remember that the Gurkhas going through the tunnel and, and get going into Pristina, into Kosovo. Yeah. Okay. Yes, yeah, so I've been regularly there as well. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. uh, yeah. So. Um, I don't know if you have seen on PBS, there's a pretty wonderful, you know, public, uh, uh, do you know what I mean by PBS? Uh, public broadcasting uh, mm-hmm. service in the, mm-hmm. in the United States. Um, there's been a wonderful, it was a, old, it's 2011, but there's a pretty mm-hmm. wonderful series called Women, War and Peace that if you actually haven't seen it, mm-hmm. it might be interesting for you to see because it'll probably be uh, remindful of many of the places that you have been and traveled to in your work. Yeah, I'd be very so interested it, to see that. Thank you for that. Yeah. yeah. So is there anything else in terms of your background that you'd like to share with the listeners? Or is that you think I kind of, I'm going to put your bio up on the website for <laughs> sure. <laughs> you know, what I'd like to add um, is that, uh, you know, I studied business school and it was a lot about organizational change, but it's very much from the organizational perspective, you know, from from how you move the organization and how you redesign it and how you also look at the processes inside and, and how you deal with empowering people and this and that. But it didn't cover the viewpoint or experience from the, you know, from the individuals working there. And um, uh, so for me, that was the missing link. And, and actually, my graduation paper was called The Pearl Within the Shell, and the shell being mm. the organization and shell actually being shell the oil mm. organization, because mm. that's why I, 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 I did my graduation paper, wrote there, my internship, and work later on there as well. And the pearl is the person. And so, f- you know, we need to see the people in organizations as the pearls. And the organization should be built to support these people to perform their duties and perform, um, you know, their, their tasks that are aligned with the mandate in order for the organization to fulfill you know, what it is supposed to do here. And um, so that whole interaction between the organization and the video also prompted me to then study psychology, which I have done for three years at a, at a very intensive private institute in, in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. And that I just wanted to add, because I think that's, that's important for people to understand if we continue this, this interview, how I sit in my work, how I see my work, how, you know, what my view is. It's really the interplay between the human and the organizational dynamics, specifically in times of change, and we are forever in times of change, um, you know, and, and that just fascinates me. And I feel that there is where I have a contribution to make. Yeah, 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 that you really need to, you can't pay, you can't, you can't avoid looking at the individual level of system, if you will, and really, really making sure that you're creating the, the best opportunity for people to bring their best selves mm. to work or to whether, mm-hmm. whatever the endeavor that they're doing. Mm. Um, so, you know, and also preliminarily, um, mm-hmm. like, okay, so, you know, um, 
you, uh, I visited you, I've stayed with you in Uganda. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we went, you know, and, and then we've done work together in, in, uh, at UNMIS, which is the UN mission, uh, in South Sudan. It's in mm-hmm. UNMIS with one, with two S's, not, yeah. and you can sit there and tell UNMISSES. 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 <laughs> yeah. Un-misses. But, um, I don't know any other, like, uh, I don't know, do you consider yourself, this is obviously the peace building podcast, and yeah. I don't know if you relate to being a peace builder. Is that a term that, that uh, resonates with you? Yeah, definitely. I like that very much because, as you said, well, you know, my vision is to help people create a harmonious workplace. I mean, harmonious is also peaceful, right? It's, and, and yeah, peace building, uh, yeah, uh, that's about making things harmonious and in tune with each other and, you know, out of conflict. So uh, definitely, it doesn't definitely uh, resonate with me. Can you say anything like, so you're an ombudsman? Ombudswoman, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Ombuds, um, ombudsman, Ombudswoman, whatever. Yeah, Ombudsperson, Ombuds everything, everything goes. Yeah. What's the What's the connection in your mind between building peace and being an ombudsperson? What is ombuds? Maybe you yeah. should say a little bit about what that is, because some people may not really know exactly what that, that is. Yeah, I think it's a very good idea. So very briefly said... The core of the work of an organizational ombudsman, which I am, I'm an organizational ombudsman, is that anyone, uh, you know, any staff member of the organization can come to me with a work-related concern. So it's the staff members, not the clients, yeah, or the stakeholders of the mm-hmm. organization. It's the staff members and uh, work-related concerns. So I don't do personal concerns. I'm not a staff counselor where you also can go to with your uh, substance abuse or your sleeplessness or, you know, depressions or whatever. Um, But for me, it's work-related concerns. And work-related is also very broad. And that ranges from people who have questions about their entitlements up to people who have uh, problems with their boss or feel uh, bullied, harassed in the workplace, of or have witnessed or even committed fraud, or uh, you know uh, engaged in behaviour that is not uh, 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 you know allowed in the organisation, prohibited behaviour, um, or who um, are in huge group conflicts. That's possible as well. And so any of that, they can come to me. And what we always say, it's a very safe first step to go to the ombudsman because I work confidential. This is a very important uh, quality of our principle of our work as ombudsman in organizations. So even the fact that people talk with us doesn't go anywhere. It Mm -hmm. does mean also that we don't make any records um, um, and what we do with, this inf- with the issues that people bring to us is to work with them in, 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 in finding the best solutions. I mean, first understanding, of course, the, the issue at hand better because the person who brings it can have a certain perspective on it. And I can bring in other perspectives through questioning and, you know, and, and also link it to the organizational dynamics. And then we see like, what are your options to resolve this? Because we're always looking at resolution of the issue. And that is something that the person who comes to me, the staff member who comes to me, can maybe totally do him or herself. 
or it might also require an intervention on my part, or I might also refer people to other offices or instances, or I might do some skill training with them. And I've got a very important part is if I will work as well, um, and that's why I stress the organizational interest I have, an organizational change ex- background, is to look at the systemic issues. So through the stories that people bring us about, uh, you know, the experiences with issues and problems and conflict in the organization, to look at how does the organization let these conflicts happen or these problems happen, and what is the organization able to do about resolving them or able about you know supporting people to resolve them and what got stuck or what is dysfunctional or what is actually up to change and then I look as an ombudsman how can I get that message across to the decision makers to the management and so that interventions that they should make to improve things actually also happen. So it's so really from for... the individual, uh, you know, issue mm-hmm. going all the way up to, uh, yeah, the organizational change. Mm-hmm. So it's a very broad spectrum, and I and I really enjoy that very much. Yeah, yeah. you're looking for systemic patterns mm-hmm. essentially, and then building awareness at senior yeah. levels about what the systemic patterns are, so that mm-hmm. they can make changes. Yeah, uh, because you're seeing people at the individual or group level yeah. or departmental level, yeah. but then. There, you know, you look, you look to see what's happening over and over and over again yeah. that we actually could do something about as an organization. Yeah, um, exactly. Now, it's a, it's a young-ish profession. Yeah. Um, it started basically in the Americas, and um, it's didn't now. Didn't it start in Sweden? Sweden? Yeah, Sweden? but the, but I, the ombudsman, as uh, of course, exists as a governmental ombudsman as well, and mm-hmm. the and the governmental ombudsman have uh, also a mandate to investigate issues, and they also can give a binding, um, uh, yeah, I would almost say verdict, that's of course not the right word, but they can give a, a, a binding decision. A decision or, you know, and say, well, this is how it's going to be solved and this is going to change. Or, And that is, of course, different from what an organizational ombudsman does. So in the organization, we're part of the system of justice and you have an internal system of justice where people can, you know, uh, file a grievance, a complaint, go to have this, you know, go to the internal tribunals and the ombudsman works parallel to that. So the moment the grievance starts to exist, we like to come already then in play uh, to de-escalate the issue, to also do early intervention, because that's always the most effective, obviously. If you let it faster, uh, it can grow cancerous, and then it's very hard uh, to deal with it. Uh, as you and I have seen when we did a whole group mediation, when a department had like a huge issue and it was going on for, for, for a very long time, and you mm-hmm. know, um, and it was very hard then to, to well, to, 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 to resolve all, mm-hmm. all that. Um, yeah, and so every step in the formal process, we could be there as ombudsmen or as mediators between parties if it goes to the internal tribunals to help solve, to come to resolution. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, so it's the newest mm-hmm. profession. But I think what's interesting to know also is that I really got into this because I had been working uh, as a change consultant, but also uh, as an HR manager, then as a general manager, if you like as well um, and, and, and as a general manager and I often got problems of people brought to me and 
I knew there was a better way to solve them, but it's not, you know, there's, there's no. Then what, what was it? What was sort of the status? What was, what was sort of happening? Well, for example, once I, when I worked for the United Nations uh, agency that works with the Palestine refugees in the Middle East, mm-hmm. and I worked in Damascus in, in Syria, I got a conflict that came to me um, when I was head of, of uh, general services, you like what's called administrative you know, department mm-hmm. that does HR and IT and general services and uh, training and this and that. Um, so they came to me. Because they had a whole community problem among the mm-hmm. teachers, among, you know, uh, the people working in the school, the health clinic, uh, you know, in a certain real refugee camp. And so I went out there and I did a mediation, if you like, with the community. Mm-hmm. And for me, this was so interesting. It gave me so much fulfillment. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, also, uh, people come to me and they've been bullied at work uh, or they've been mistreated or, you know, they haven't gotten, uh, been given their due entitlements or whatever. And so mm-hmm. you really want to help them resolve that. And then I thought, this must not be an afterthought for a manager. We need to mm-hmm. have this mm-hmm. better. And mm-hmm. then I heard about organizational ombudsman, mm-hmm. because Kofi uh, Annan asked that his uh, UN internal system of justice... He was the got, secretary general at the time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, at the time, got, uh, you know, uh, evaluated. And then the, the biggest recommendation out of that evaluation in 2006 was um, you need to revamp, redesign your internal system of justice, the tribunals. It's very dysfunctional. But also you have an ombudsman and that that office needs to decentralize. You need to have regional ombudsmen. And this is what they all you know, should be doing and where they should be going. And I really wanted to become one of them. And the regional ombudsman... And I did. Uh, I managed. Yeah. yeah. And the regional ombudsman group, that just got started in the UN Secretariat uh, in 2000, what? When did, when did that whole structure start? It wasn't I mean, really in 2010, early 20, because we got together, yeah, uh, yeah uh, end of 2009, and then 2010, everyone got deployed in seven regional offices uh, for the United Nations, and yeah, and that's how so it works. So can you tell, you know, can you tell the story, uh, I mean, uh, things that I would like to talk to you about, but you can also tell me what you would, you know, is, I'd love to have you just tell the listeners a little bit about, you know, first being in Khartoum, and then going to Entebbe, and how you changed, you know, how you changed offices, and and then, and then maybe get into, uh, I'm not sure, you know, I always ask, I know you have asked you to come up with one thing that you might want to talk about, uh, and, and that mm-hmm. might be your whole role as an ombuds, or maybe mm-hmm. there's something else. But can I first ask you about just the Khartoum to Entebbe and, you know, just uh, just paint a picture yeah. of a little bit about what your life has been like between these two places? Yeah, for sure. So uh, it was decided that uh, one of the regional offices should be in Khartoum. Um, Sudan uh, at that time in 2009 and 10 had, uh, you know, was still one country. It was before the succession of South Sudan, which only happened in 2011. And so a huge country. Uh, I think at the moment it was the biggest in, in, in Africa. 
Uh, a although, huge swamp, right? Doesn't Sudan mean swamp, right? The Sud, <laughs> yeah, 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 the Sud. Yeah, the that, Sud. of course, yeah. is in the south. So South Sudan is... Uh. That has the the, the, the the jungles and the and mud as you, which you talked about, and that's where we've been together. But what is now the Sudan, uh, or at the time was more called, you know, uh, informally North Sudan, and where the four is, that's uh, uh, for a huge part a very dry uh, country and you know more a desert-like uh, place, you know. Mm-hmm although it has its rainfalls as well. But um, so I came to Khartoum at the time, set up my office there within the mission in Sudan. So that was unmiss, contrary to unmisses. One is. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, so I worked from there covering the mission in Darfur, but as well as the mission in Sudan, which was both in Darfur as well as in South Sudan, and actually more in South Sudan at the moment, or at that time. And yeah, what happens in peacekeeping, it's very um, dynamic peacekeeping. And every half year, uh, the, the mandate is being reviewed. And every year it is being extended or not. And then the mandate can also be really changed. And so um, after the succession in 2011, um, the Sudan uh, wanted to not anymore have the mission in Sudan existing. And so uh, it closed and, and, and its mandate had also finished. And um, with that, um, the staff and the mission left and there was only a small liquidation team uh, behind to take care of the assets of the UN. They really call it a liquidation mm-hmm. team. And so uh, me, I was as an ombudsman office, being part of the secretary general office in New York for my independence. I'm not part of any of the entities I ombuds for. I'm independent, which also makes it a safe place uh, for staff to go uh, to me because uh, I'm not part of their mission structure, not part of the organizational structure, not part of any line, you know, that they are part of, but not mm-hmm. me. Uh, so there's no strings attached uh, for me uh, working uh, with their mission. And, um, yeah, so we were like, where are we going next? And so I did an assessment of where my uh, missions are located and what's the best way to reach them all. And that turned out to be Entebbe. So, and then we went to Entebbe. And how we did that, at the time, the United Nations had flight from Khartoum to Al-Fasha, which is the capital of Darfur, and from Al-Fasha to Entebbe. And so we thought that would be the best way and we needed to get our office uh, stuff as well and files and, and our own personal belongings down to uh, Antebe. And what the Sudan had decided at the time was that anyone who works for UNMIS is not welcome in Darfur because, you know, that's UNAMIT. And, you know, trying to explain to them that you West work United. for both. UNAMIT mm-hmm. is the mission in Darfur, United Nations mm-hmm. mission in Darfur. Mm-hmm. United Nations, uh, yeah, uh, assistance mission in Darfur, and um, so so try to explain to the Sudan government that you work actually for both missions and um, you know both for UNAMIT and uh, MIS. So so that uh, they didn't uh, agree to that didn't, something didn't like that was <laughs> they didn't go yeah. for, they didn't go over it. So mm-hmm. I remembered that my staff member who uh, Ethiopian staff member arrived in Darfur is the the national. Mm-hmm. Salome and the national police was waiting at the stairs to check people's IDs and uh, you know I- identification tags and and so um, they sent her back. They they kept her in an office for several hours and then she had to stay on the airport until the next day to the UN flight would return to Khartoum. Mm-hmm. 
And so we had to find a way around that, which we uh, managed to do finally. Uh, um, and um, uh, but but yeah, I, I remember that she then had to drive from the one plane with a bus to the other plane would bring her to Entebbe, and she had to duck under the seat for the security not to see her. <laughs> <laughs> because you know she's got this huge amount of curly hair and she would have uh, definitely been recognized and uh, uh, you know and been asked to step out and and you know and be returned to Khartoum so and um, but we made it and we came to Entebbe and then were hosted uh, by the mission actually in the Congo who uh, uh, manages the, their support base in Entebbe and that's mm-hmm. where I why I have been located for the last four years and we okay. will continue to be located there. And, the, and it's, yeah. you know, peacekeeping mm-hmm. is extremely dynamic. So one mission is closed and then the mission in South Sudan and misses opens. Abiyé opened the, the, the interim security forces in Abiyé. That is where the oil issues are, where there is fighting mm-hmm. uh, and also where there is a dispute between North. Or, That's or where, just, uh, where a lot of the ongoing conf- actual act actual armed conflict has been happening is right about there now or in Abiy, but it's, it's a small mm. area but particularly mm. in south sudan mm-hmm. since december uh, 2013 so that's been mm. now for full two years but then we also have had now a uh, central african republic starting burundi mm-hmm. uh, stopping and then we mm-hmm. had an election mission and now burundi has had big issues there so now we will mm. see which new mission will be opened there we had the mm. mission open in mali so uh, it's, it's, you know, the Congo also, the headquarters were in Kinshasa, then in the northeast, close to the Ugandan border, the fighting continued. So most of the headquarters were moved to Goma, which is close to the Ugandan border. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the dynamic of, of peacekeeping continuously, right. but it remains, unfortunately, very uh, busy for peacekeeping in, in Africa. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, very fluid and, and yeah. a lot of intensity. Yeah. So, you know, can you, is there a piece of work or, or a, a, a one thing that you, I don't know if there is one thing that you wanted to tell the listeners about or, um, uh, or we can continue talking about this in general, but is there, you know, is there a specific piece of work that you think would be an interesting and instructive uh, case that you could share that comes yeah. to mind? Yeah, I, I could, and because it also will show how I work in the, the, with the dynamics of organizational, you know, change and interventions and what, you know, the human dynamic. Um, and, uh, you know, that's what I always keep in mind when individuals come to me. So here I came to, um, to South Sudan, to the mission in South Sudan several years ago. And, uh, and mind you, when you're doing that, you're in Entebbe, so you have yeah. to fly into, you South go Sudan. in for like a couple of weeks at a time, you go into South Sudan to do your work, right? Um, yeah, for a minimum one week, up to two. And to mm-hmm. Darfur from here, I go for a minimum of two weeks, up to three. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, quite often. And so it depends on where you go to and also the issues at hand. Um, but it's, it's not a mission of two or three days. They're, they're longer. Definitely. And can you paint, I don't want to interrupt you, but can you paint a picture of when you go into South Sudan or Darfur? Can you paint a picture of like what that looks like going in there? Um, you're flying in on, a, I know, on a UN plane. Yeah, it's a UN plane. So the United Nations have their own uh, planes uh, uh, for reason of uh, uh, being independent and their own mobility and their own schedules and being in control of, of, of their, you know, their own uh 
uh, yeah, movement control, <laughs> as they call mm -hmm. it, literally. And um, so you fly, for example, from Khartoum to Al-Fashid, and then you can fly onwards, for example, with a helicopter or with, uh, you know, to other places, because in, in, wow. in there for a lot of places, uh, you can't reach over the road. And if you fly in, there might not be an, enough of a runway for a fixed wing, as they call it. So you need to go with, with a helicopter. And in, in South Sudan, it's the same. Abia, you can only reach with a helicopter, um, you know, and often the UN works to improve that and, you know, and then also leaves improved airfields and runways behind uh, once they, you know, leave uh, for the community and for the government to use. So, um, yeah, so it, it's, it's um, you know, you, you, it's just normal. You go to the normal airport where there is a UN terminal. In Khartoum, we had a UN terminal at the other side of the airport. So you come there, you have uh, check-in. So you have check-in counters uh, and you have your luggage get weighed. You get you get a boarding pass as well. You get your luggage ticket. So it's all quite similar. You have a waiting room. You have a little canteen. <laughs> and then you wait until your flight gets cold. And, you, and so you board. And at the other end, uh, your transport is is waiting to bring you uh, to the office. And once I actually arrived in Yala, which is a big uh, place in the uh, second biggest place in, in South Sudan. Oh, sorry, in the Sudan in, in Darfur as well. And Yala has been for a long time under uh, lots of um, movement restrictions due to the violence. So, so and the airport is is half an hour away from the UN compound. And so we had to go with an armed escort. So I was taken off the plane and put in an armored car with a bodyguard and a driver. And then, you know, I had no idea that this, this was necessary there. And then um, we, we drove with a armed escort in front of eight uh, um, Nigerian military, I mean, really armed to from top to down with flak jackets, helmets, and automatic guns, and even uh, rocket-propelled grenades. <laughs> um, you know, the ones that we actually see the terrorists having over their shoulder, they had them mm. too, and mm. a similar car at the back. And they mm. were sitting in open seats so they could jump off any time. And that all to move just one person. Um, and, and I remember I was sitting there and sort of looking around, feeling a bit you know, embarrassed about this being all necessary, but there were United Nations tanks also on strategic positions. Um, and um, and then at one point uh, I heard, Shh. and so we mm. had a flat tire. So oh, my God. <laughs> so, you know, so then the military will jump out of their, uh, you know, escort vehicles <laughs> and they spread out and, you know, and then one or two... Uh, 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 changed the tire and I was like oh I want to open a window and then I realized that armored cars don't allow you to open a window clearly yeah. <laughs> so and I've had that when I worked in Kosovo when I visited Kosovo at the time I had the same thing yeah, I, was, I was in armored cars uh, going around Kosovo there as well and uh, at certain times had a bodyguard and I remember also once that I had to stay in Pristina when uh, it was really a rough time and they put me in a safe house so you're mm -hmm. at, at sort of the outskirts of the city uh, where there's left and right heaps of smoke going up because of the looting and, and, and mm -hmm. some you know, inter-fighting. And I was in a safe house with a radio. There was no uh, electricity. There was no um, water. And, um, you know, with uh, a, a package of biscuits and a bottle of water. 
<laughs> they yeah. left me there and locked the door. Yeah. And it's like, oh, the next day we pick you up, which they did. Hard to, hard to do your work when you sort of basically are under siege yourself. Yeah, but it is, it, it, for me, it doesn't happen on a daily basis. It's only mm-hmm. it's for me during those visits and not every place I go. So mm-hmm. I have also been often enough, uh, well, in Darfur, you always, and in South Sudan now also, always the UN works and live in the same compound. Mm-hmm. So they have their offices on the compound and they have their little village, a UN village on the compound. They have restaurants, they have a canteen, they have a coffee bar, they have a gym, they have a, you know, a welfare place. They try to organize activities. And if I come visit, I stay there as well. Mm-hmm. You know, and, 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 and they're often play, always playing country western music as far as I can tell. <laughs> it's like, what's wrong with this picture? <laughs> yeah, and then in South Sudan, when we were there, we stayed in a hotel but uh, the situation in many of the places in South Sudan now is, is also such that also as a visitor, you have to stay at the, on the compound. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's changed now too due to the violence. So, and also I've had in Darfur often enough or that I went to places and it was not, or in South Sudan too, uh, or Abiyé, that there's not much to eat. So there's mm-hmm. like uh, onions and tomato and, and goat's meat. And it's really nice if you are a vegetarian. So I'm, I'm very well tuned into all this and take my own biscuits and dates and, you know, what have you, and nuts and, 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 and apples so that if need be, I can survive uh, for several days there without having to use, you know, the food available. Um, and there's stuff who really have to every time when they come back to the mission from leave, you know, have to bring foodstuffs in, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to, to survive. And, and mm-hmm. so, so it's, it's, uh, it's a really rough places, but you know, it's, it's part of it and it's very good to be there because you need to understand if you want to help these people, you need to understand what they face, what it is like for them. Like when we were in Abiyé and, uh, Siloma had a, you know, we, we, you live and work in containers, uh, you know, just, and 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 she hers was infested with cockroaches, for mm-hmm. example, and um, and she had to deal with that. I had people deal with that, and 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 then you know we had the shower outside, and then somebody had left light on and the door open, which you should not do in the middle of South Sudan in the jungle, and because there were a thousand insects inside, but I really wanted <laughs> the shower. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you, you gotta you 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 just have to deal with it. And I always think, mm-hmm. well, I don't have to do this every day. And, you know, I'm here, here to do my work. I just, um, you know, you, it, it's okay. I, I, it's okay. It's just part of it. I think what, what is more of a hazard is, um, is, is that you can have, uh, you know, food poisoning or, you know, w- waterborne diseases, uh, you know, malaria. You can be bitten by a dog, you know, it's rabies. You know, these kind of things I find far more concerning. You know, can people got typhoid a lot in these missions. Uh, you have unhygienic circumstances, you know, bad food. And that is really what you have to, uh, you know, have to be alert for. You have to really be keeping healthy. The mental strain is huge as well. And, uh, and just so for people who work there all the time, they get uh, rest and recuperation every so many weeks, depending on how their uh, duty station is qualified and you know, how the hardship level is qualified. Um, and, um, you know, and you have to get out then, or that's the idea, uh, go somewhere and, and relax. And, um, but you also have to keep in mind that you need to set up your, you know, your own routine and, and you need to eat healthy and, and not when it's stressful for you and hard to engage in, you know, destructive behavior, like maybe drinking, if that's possible in South mm-hmm. Sudan, it is in Darfur, obviously, is dry. Uh, 
<laughs> or you know um, and and for me what i do and for me it's just again it's visits but i always have my travel yoga mat with me of it my <laughs> if i travel with my case officer we do yoga sessions in the office you know we close mm. the door we have in the office wherever we are yoga i've been known to do it in front of my container and you know in the evening hours um, mm. and and that you know and your own compounds where also mal- military staff walks around and after working hours everyone goes for a walk or run or jog mm. and then they come past your where i'm standing on my head they're just running past you know? <laughs> and and you just gotta gotta do it you know because because it keeps you sane and yeah. i think that's 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 very important yeah 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 Mm-hmm. So this is a, thank you so much for painting that picture because I think it really gives much more detail and, and context to, to what it's like and where you are. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of a piece of work or something yeah. that you think, a story that you think might capture, um, sounds like you had one that you'd like to tell, it, if that's right. Yeah, no, for sure. And, you know, there's several stories to tell because I think the beauty of this work is, and I all the time I get really, um, I think the American way is to say excited about it, but I really, you know, I really get the, the vibes going when I love it when people come to you and they really feel stuck and they're sad or they're angry and or upset or resentful, whatever you have. And you can work with them, not only through the issue at hand and see, you know, the options and how to resolve it, but also work with them on how to take a, a different perspective and and see if they can release uh, you know part if not all of their anger resentment uh, or hurt about it um, and then take what you know it, what they learned into their life you know uh, for, in a positive way and um, and also what what I notice is that just to be there and to listen to people to really be there and listen is 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 enormously important and i think in many peace building activities or mediation it's the listening that we do and therefore it's listening to the different tribes in south sudan you need to listen to the people you need to listen what they need what their intentions are how they want to reach it and then you need to talk together how you can do it and that's so you know each one involved can you know, achieve what they would like to achieve in the best possible way without harming others or hurting others or treading upon their rights, obviously. And so in in, in organization, it's the same. Um, And, you know, I'll give you, for instance, it's an example that I have have used a a few times to, because it's such a good one to explain uh, what the work of an ombudsman encompasses, right? So, I came into the mission in South Sudan and um, the national staff, a part of the national staff, were on strike. So that's that's uh, quite of an issue. Just what to, what just do you mean by the national staff, just for the listeners? What, what do you mean by that concept? Okay, so if uh, United Nations opens a peacekeeping mission somewhere, they will have international staff uh, who are trained to set up a mission on the ground and they bring in the material and equipments to do that. And they will also have often international professional staff, human rights officers, election officers, rule of law officers, civil uh, affairs, political affairs, um, 
Um, and, you know, of course, then also all the support, so human resources, logistics and engineering and, you know, you name it, which you all need uh, to build the offices and to have the, 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 the compounds or the camps, as you call them. Um, but you need national staff because you're there and you need to employ national staff uh, and also look, of course, what the national staff locally, uh, what kind of skills they had, their language capacities, etc., and employ them. So you always have national staff. In, in any mission. And you have national support stuff, you have national professional stuff. So you also will find national human rights officer, national civil affairs officers, you know, depending on the mandate of the mission. Uh, of, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, national staff, uh, or part of national staff was on strike. And what had ignited this or caused this was a few things, but one of, one of the really uh, a few long ongoing issues that were never solved, but also uh, there had been a physical fight between an international staff and a national staff member. And so the, the knee-jerk reaction of an organization is to, you know, uh, you know, discipline both the staff members, to throw the rule book at them, uh, you know, to then uh, issue uh, a memo uh, telling everyone that this kind of behavior is, 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 you know, zero tolerance, not accepted, and this and that, and then, you know, continue. But <laughs> you're stuck with a physical fight that happened, a strike now that's going on, and, and, um, and there is a story going around in the mission, namely, people are depressed. They came to me, they were depressed about that this incident had happened, that it had come so far, yeah. It's, it's obviously hard uh, often to reconcile international staff with national staff, different cultures, different work approaches, national staff, you know, basically by default ha have gone or are going through conflict and war and armed conflict and have lost family, have a lot of bereavement and grief to deal with, uh, have, uh, uh, you know, post-traumatic stress disorders or worse. Um, so, um, you know, have often a limited set of skills because during the conflict, um, their education got, you know, uh, stopped or, you know, they weren't, they had to leave their schools or universities. So uh, there is always a bit of a friction uh, because of the huge difference in their income, the internationals, and they go home every so many uh, weeks and get home leave, and the nationals, they don't get that because they're supposed to be from the country. It's a whole, uh, whole uh, HR vision behind that. But, um, you know, for me as an ombudsman, it's important to look at what happened in that conflict between these two people, why it happened, but also what is within the organization happening that it culminated in this and what happens in the organization now that this, you know, physical conflict, you know, became known to everyone. And, and do you ask yourself the question, what's happening in the outer environment as well, the context, the, the, the region, I mean, the regional situation that's also affecting the organization yeah. that's affecting, I mean, I don't know whether that you start making the, weaving those threads or not. But Well, look, uh, I'm an organizational ombudsman, so my first uh, focus is the, the individuals and the organization, obviously, mm -hmm. and that's also how I've explained my mandate. But at the same time, of course... The UN is inside an area where there is a conflict that has been conflict last decennia, generations long, mm -hmm. um, and and you know and so yeah, everything 
counts into that, and I will uh, will refer to that later on. So my my approach is 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 then to look at the broader picture, the organizational picture, and I talked with different people about it, what it meant for them that this had happened. And so people were depressed about it and they felt defeated. They felt like, you know, we want to work here, we want to help this country, uh, this new, the newest country in the world, South Sudan, to, you know, build itself up, to uh, strengthen itself. That's what we're here for. And, you know, and this is just that has happened is disturbing. It reflects very bad on us. It reflects very bad on us in the community. There's so many things not going well. And, you know, we need to better take care of a lot of things. And so I started asking them, I said, what do you think needs to happen? you know, to turn this around, to, to improve uh, the atmosphere in the mission, to improve these relationships, working relationships in the mission, to improve, you know, the, the motivation, the morale of the staff. And I had also talked with the head of mission, uh, Hilda Johnson at the time, uh, the SRSG, the secretary, you know, the special representative of the secretary general, the head of the mission. And uh, she was very open for uh, my ombudsman intervention. She said, Gabrielle, you know, whatever you can do, do it, please, because we're just... She also saw that the incident in a far broader context, clearly. Mm-hmm. And so with, I just gathered people who I already knew and also I think this is sort of the business school kind of knows I've got for who are the movers, the shakers, who are the ones who change things for the better, who are the ones who, if they would be empowered, would be able to, you know, bring good to this organization and bring, you know, positive uh, change. And so I remember that I, you know, I, I got them all together, you know, then it was part of the National Staff Association, the 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 the, the, uh, the international staff union, if you like. Um, there were uh, people from different departments, from the United Nations volunteers, from from HR, but also from the substantial, so from civil affairs, from human rights, from police, from and you get them all together, and those people who want to really talk about this and want to contribute. And so they come up with, with many ideas that would improve it. So I dealt with them, these ideas, and then I fed them back to this group as well as to others. And there were about 14 things that need to be done from a training of managers and staff in conflict resolution at work to also training for local staff outside of, of their workspace uh, to create more coherence uh, among them and to also do capacity building mm-hmm. um, up to we need to reach out to the community, we need to start community projects as this mm-hmm. mission in South Sudan, um, up to, uh, you know, more ideas how a communication within the mission should flow. Um, uh, so it was quite a laundry list. And that mm-hmm. laundry list I communicated to the mission management, mm-hmm. one person at a time. Mm-hmm. And why did I do it with the mission management is about sort of six, seven uh, uh, mission management team uh, people. And because so that everyone to the ombudsman was confidential, it's not on the record, it's not an official meeting. They all could express their doubts or their questions or and, and, and some had quite a bit. And then I could work with them to to release those doubts and see, for example, somebody said, yeah, but Gabrielle, we could do all this, but we don't have the people for it. I said, but I've asked them, and they all want to volunteer. Mm-hmm. You know, th- but they tell you you should give them 
the means to do it. And it means, it actually means the space. Time they will create themselves. They live and work in the same compound. They won't eat away from, from their time. But they want not that if they take an initiative that somebody throws a rule book at them and diminish their efforts and take away mm. their energy. They want to be able to do this because their intention is so and so. And of course, that's that's working within a bureaucracy. Bureaucracy can be very, you know, to put it a bit harsh, devastating, you know, to people because <laughs> it can really take uh, the soul out of what people are doing. And the United mm -hmm. Nations is unfortunately very much of a, a bureaucracy mm. and not uh, a very functional uh, uh, oftentimes either. And so a lot of people lose because of that, uh, um, the, the, their zest, you know, for, for, for mm. their work. And, mm. and so that's what we discussed. And it fell in very, you know, fertile earth, all these suggestions, which weren't mine. I had just been the channel for this. Yes. Um, and, um, um, yeah, and they've worked on them to implement them for two years. You know, and I remember that the deputy, you know, uh, SRSG, uh, the deputy head of mission once spoke to me, said, come around. He said, we just finalized the one of the list, or the last one of the list, you know, and, and that was two years later. Yeah. So, so and, they and really I, have taken it to heart and, and, and they really are making progress with the things. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. They took it all on board. So, uh, mm -hmm. and I think that is just a very good example of mm -hmm. of how you can take a conflict between two people, you know, into a real broader context, mm -hmm. and can mm -hmm. through that analyze what's actually going on into the, in the organization, mm -hmm. and can then also mobilize, you know, the people and their skills. And their, uh, you know, the, their volunteerism, if you like, or their, uh, their motive, you know, you can mobilize them to get things mm -hmm. done together. But you need to, of course, then support that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you need to support that yeah. and not disempower it. And, and uh, I think at the time they really did a good job. And unfortunately, uh, not long thereafter or, or uh, even yeah, less than two years thereafter, uh, the violence started to erupt in South Sudan. Right yes. after we were there, I think it started to, yeah. Yeah, so it's the um, end of 2013. So, um, mm. yeah, but I think this is this is a very good example. And, and, and I also mm. would like to give a smaller one because, as mm. you said in the announcement, I'm also a mediator and I'm certified mediator. Um, as I pictured also the places where people work, you just must imagine that you are... A logistics officer, so you, or, or you are an engineer or an IT, uh, uh, you know, person, and you are being, you know, you want to work in peacekeeping, and you know, and then you'll be sent to, let's say, Abia, and you arrive there, and it's a whole day almost to get there from Antebbe, and you're in this container, you have shared uh, showers and toilets, and. Uh, you know, there's only a half a chicken a day to eat, eat with one uh, onion and a tomato. <laughs> and there's <laughs> nothing to do. You can't leave the compound because outside is too dangerous. Um, and, and uh, you know, uh, this rainy season and you have to have your Wellingtons on because the mud is almost knee high. And in your container, you have issues, uh, you know, infestation of, of, of rodents. And um, there's a lack of everything. 
And there's electricity no, probably too. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Electricity, water can be rationed as well. Um, you know, water is normally in all these compounds turned off for most of the day. Uh, mm-hmm. The same with power. Uh, so it's, 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 you know, you, it's, it's sort of half kind of camping that you're doing. And, and, and indeed, mm-hmm. like people in Central African Republic, there, there, uh, a lot of them are, are working in tents and are living in tents out there mm-hmm. right and mm-hmm. that's that's how missions start up in central africa mm-hmm. republic is still starting up so and you're there and you know you got a conflict with your supervisor and you after work you go to your little container and you don't have television and the internet is down and you can't skype with your spouse or your friends or you know whoever to talk about the issue. And so it goes around in your head. And before you know it, you know, these people just writing an angry letter to Ban Ki-moon, the Secretary General of the United Nations. I mean, just to say something, or they 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 really see now their boss as as the worst person on this earth and could, you know, you know, and don't see a way out anymore. So it gets out of proportion. Because you're in a situation that's out of proportion, right? So what's out there reflects on you. And I think, and that's what I also said earlier, I want to refer to, is that never underestimate the power on you of the conflict you're located in. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. if you're, and I've noticed that when I worked in the Middle East, in Palestinian conflict, um, you know, the, the dynamics of the conflicts around you, they seep into the energy of your workplace also as a peacekeeping mission. So mm-hmm. if, if you've got tribal conflict going on around, you know, mission in South Sudan or in Darfur, of course you have them within the mission as well, mm-hmm. you know, and tribes mm-hmm. could then be either one department against the other or nationalities of, of mission members, you know, staff members against other nationalities of, of staff members or, you know, the, the Middle Eastern staff uh, in conflict with the Africans, Northern African staff or, you know, the European staff in conflict with the uh, Eastern European. You know, every, anything is possible, but it's a sort of, uh, you got to create an awareness if you want to work in these places uh, or, you know, like also when I was in Kosovo, yeah, at work, there was also issue around religion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there mm-hmm. was also a big mm-hmm. issue between the Christians and the Muslims in, in, in Kosovo. Um, um, so you got to be aware of that. And and me, when I listen to people come on the issue, I, I really need to know where they're located, what are the local, you know, conflict issues, tribal issues, and unravel that for them as well. But things get out of proportion sitting there. And, so, and, and, and most and I work... what about the other... Oh, yeah. well, go ahead. Uh, if you, well, let me just say what I want to ask you because I don't want to... Yeah. I don't want to, again, I don't want to uh, uh, mess up your thread, but so it's, it's really clear the picture you're painting of how the external environment is coming into the internal environment. But uh, it makes me wonder about so... Because you're trying to improve the internal environment and then the question is, how are there ways that you see that then uh, percolating out in the external environment? What, you know, are ways that the internal environment can then impact the external environment in positive ways? Hmm. That's a big question, but it's a very, yeah, it's a big question. But for me, it's, it boils down to what I said earlier and what is in my bio. If, if you can deal with your conflicts at work and, and work in a more harmonious workplace, you will be more effective in your work that you bring out in the world. Now, for some people, the work means bringing a product out of the world that needs to have a bigger market share than others. Uh, but in peacekeeping, it's to bring peace out in the world. 
And I shall never forget when the regional ombudsman got appointed in New York, Ban Ki-moon personally welcomed us at the time um, because he found it so important that there are now regional ombudsmen, that the ombudsman office that already then existed for about seven years between the UN, now for the first time got decentralized and, you know, seven regional offices were to be opened and he was he saw the positive force behind that and the biggest thing that he said that day when he welcomed us there he he said you know if we bring peace out in the world we cannot do that if we don't bring peace within our organization Mm -hmm. so we need to deal with the conflicts in Side our own house in an effective way in order to bring peace out there. And I think that's so true. And I honestly really believe in that. And you got to have a lot of awareness on that, you know, that you, and, and, and I think in, in every profession, it's a bit like this, you know, the, 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 the children of the cobbler have rotten shoes and uh, mm-hmm. the children of the nutritionist or the nutritionist herself eats French fries at McDonald's every night. No, you mm-hmm. can't afford that when you work <laughs> mm-hmm. in peacekeeping. You can't afford mm-hmm. to say, I'm a human rights officer and I help these people get their rights and then be a bully to your staff or be a dreadful, mm-hmm. you know, colleague. there got to be awareness on that. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's such a high pressure cooker peacekeeping environment right Mm -hmm. so you have a compound you have uh, movement restrictions you have food restrictions you have uh, you know a lot of illnesses you have uh, not very good medical care available often you have issues with water with housing Um, you know people have been in parts where their older accommodation got flooded and people almost drowned um, uh, even you know, um, with flash floods in, in South Sudan um, and also in, 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 in even in Darfur, you can have flash floods. So you, you um, there's all these things. And then you are without your family. You're normally uh, miles away, countries away, continents away from your family, your social circle, your friends. Your structure is completely changed because at home, the job you had, you know, you came from home to work, you had your clubs, your your social clubs, your sport club, whatever you did, your shopping on Saturday, your hairdresser, you know, hairdresser always. And suddenly you're, you're out there and none of that is there. Mm-hmm. And you have mm-hmm. to make do with all these idiots from all over the world or all these mm-hmm. very, you know, intelligent mm-hmm. professionals that, you know, but, but you you got to make do. It's not all anymore the people from your own country and it's not your own race and not your own religion anymore. And mm-hmm. and there's this huge differences that people suddenly have to deal with on the ground. And then your beneficiaries, the people from that country that I said before, have are of either have survived war, are surviving war and have to deal with all the ramifications of that, which we, I mean, me, for, having grown up in a peaceful country, cannot even start to imagine what that implies. And I remember, you know, when we were working um, in, in the piece of work that you and I did together, Yeah, I remember the South Sudanese national staff that were there and the tremendous maturity mm-hmm. and, uh, and humility they were bringing into the room. I remember being so moved mm-hmm. by that, given... Given that so many of them had been through probably just unspeakable yeah. um, or had seen unspeakable things, yeah. and yet somehow they were able to show up yeah. with just tremendous, tremendous capacity, really. Yeah. Um, I that being, uh, yeah, no, and you know, and, and that's 
let me finish that one example about then somebody sitting in in this container and has a conflict with the boss and it gets uh, no one no one to talk to and then you know they might phone me so this person phoned me and they talked about it and dealt with the emotions and also put it into a perspective and through the options as I said so what can you do and you you know and and they always want first that the ombudsman you know, uses the magic wand and sort of does it all for them. <laughs> Rules you know? in their favor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So everyone wants to be right in a conflict too, you know. And so, right. but it's yeah. about, you know, empowering the other person, even through telephone, um, how to deal with him, it, him or herself. And we can put up a role play over the phone. We can, we can you know, we, we can talk it through. And also, I then, as a mediator, talked to the supervisor. And to get better understanding what the supervisor's issues were about, you know, uh, the staff member and this and that. So, and so you do some shuttle diplomacy and then some mediation. And then finally, set them both up to talk. You never meet them. You set them both up to talk together out there in that jungle. And, you know, have to leave it to them to create that moment and to deal with it and manage it. And then um, we got a few days later, we got a phone call from the same staff member who had his problems with his boss and said, well, I've sorted this out with the boss, and we ended up having a beer in the bar in the you know of of the mission, yeah. And Beautiful. so yeah. Yeah, yeah, so and and yeah, yeah. that makes me so happy, you know. Mm-hmm. It is mm-hmm. so important, uh, mm-hmm. and 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 you know, there's so many of these beautiful examples. I had once a staff member, he came to me and he was about to be retired and he said uh, he had gone through organizational change and it was a restructure uh, of the department he worked in and this and that. And he said, look, the management is not listening to me. And I've written these emails, given this all this advice, but they're just not listening and, and they should because I know all these things and this and this and that. I said, right. So he so, said, so show me what you've written. And he showed it to me. I said... If you ever get an email like this, will you will you be, will you be willing to accept what is you know? And he said, mm. "I said because you basically slapped them around the ears that they're stupid and incompetent." I said, "If you say that, do you really think if you want to sell an idea because that's basically what you're doing? Do you really think that this is going to help? That this is going to do the trick for you? <laughs> you just punch them on the nose and then said, do as I say." <laughs> He said, right, no, it's not the way. Anyway, we talked about also his role. He was African. <laughs> he was going back to his country and he to his village. And he wanted to really become now in the role of the elder of the village. I said, same thing there. I said, you, you can't come home and, and sort of tell everyone the right, you know, tell them how to do it. You need to create rapport and relationships with people back home, you know, to be respected. And then find an opening with them so you can become their elder and their mentor and their coach and you know the, the 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 wise guy who's been out there and comes back or the wise woman you know and and he took that he saw the parallel mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so i mean mm-hmm. and the immense relief of a person coming this was person to person so he came to my office with a strained face and his angry eyes and his attitude and then the release and the relief and the the opening he saw for himself and also how he saw his next role, you know, after his retirement, which is coming up in a few months. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And he was very, very grateful for this. You know, also later on told me that it changed the tune and that people started to listen at work and that he felt complete when he left for retirement. And so it's these kind of things, isn't it? Because we not only harm others, when we have a conflict, but we harm ourselves as well. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And I know it all from experience. I have been not very well at dealing with conflict, you know, in, in the first decennia, probably 10, 50 years of, mm-hmm. of my of my my work. And still at times I forget how to do it well. Um, but so I wish <laughs> that there was an ombudsman, you know, in my days mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. when I had issues at work and that I had not written an angry email, but rather understood how to work on this interrelational, you know, more effective way. And, mm-hmm. and, and create peace and harmony at work through my approach mm-hmm. as well. And with that also more in myself, you know. And, 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 and I, th- I always say, you know, uh, people who uh, write emails, great idea, write them and, and say everything you want in them, but put them in the draft box, never <laughs> send them, you know, write but never send. And then read mm-hmm. again, and then once you're done with it, you can delete or whatever, but never never sent it because mm-hmm. because you need to keep an eye what you want so as an ombudsman we also talk often about but what is it that you want mm-hmm. and a lot of people haven't thought about that because as you said earlier susan it's about being right and the other one is mm-hmm. is, is so nasty to me and 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 so dreadful and how are they so stupid and how could it have done this right mm-hmm. but what outcome would you like to see mm-hmm. from here mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Huh. That's a different story. And, you know, what can you contribute yeah. to this? And what could be your role in this? And, right. you know, and the same questions yeah. you ask managers. You say, you know, mm-hmm. I've got problems with my staff or my team is dysfunctional. It's what we both worked on. Yeah, but what would you like to see happen? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and how would you be able to get there? What is necessary? And what could you contribute? And mm-hmm. are you aware that if you, you know, and this, if you do this and that, that, that and that might be the outcome of it. So could you do it in a different way? For example, yeah, so, mm, so, really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, beautiful so, shifting from from blame from sort of a culture of blame to a culture of responsibility and accountability and reflection. And, yeah, uh, and a reflection. I think is is very much a keyword in there. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I've been talking for quite a bit. So. <laughs> well, and we need to end. And this is so super interesting. There's so many so many anecdotes and pictures that I think the listeners will have in their minds from listening to you and wisdom and. In the, in you know, I don't know if as we close, if there's mm-hmm. any uh, remaining thoughts or words of wisdom or anything for people who are listening that um, you want to say that that I don't want to put you on the spot, but if you have any <laughs> anything, um, you know, anyone who who wants to do this kind of work or anything that stands out to you in terms of uh, your learnings um, as you go forward, mm. or or I know I'm giving you too many things to think about, or. What's most exciting to you now? Well, however you want it. We maybe if we take like two more minutes to mm, close, thank we're, you. we're pushing yeah. the clock. But yeah. so um, I think for anyone, no matter what job you have, we normally don't get taught at school or university or whatever, you know, how to deal with conflict. And conflict is an everyday thing. And so if we if we train ourselves into this and do a course, whether it's nonviolent communication or conflict resolution or whatever. It will always be extremely helpful. And I think for managers, it's a must. You know, for managers, it is a must. And I, and I do believe that organizations like the UN will go towards looking for these kind of skills in their managers and will insist mm-hmm. that, that, that people know. And I think the other, um, if you want to do this work, you just, you need to like helping people, obviously. You need to be empathetic yeah, and be non-judgmental with whatever they come. 
Um, and, I, and I think what's very critical for an ombudsman is that they also understand the organizational dynamic and really can make that link because that just mm -hmm. increases your impact tenfold, mm -hmm. right? And, I, and um, yeah, and what I get thrilled about, well, I'm thrilled about my next move. I, 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 I had wonderful six years experience uh, in peacekeeping. I threw the word was key. Self-reflection is important. And I learned a lot from that. I've, I felt I grow, grew a lot. You know, I have gained a lot myself out of this of a person. And so now I'm ready to become the ombudsman for WFP and love humanitarian the World Food Program. The World Food mm -hmm. Program. And I love mm -hmm. humanitarian organizations. And they work mm -hmm. in 80, so 80 different countries around mm -hmm. the world. Uh, so on all continents. And I'll be very... Yeah, I'm very proud, but also happy to be able to start work there and continue with this work within organizations. Yeah. So, Gabrielle, I'm going to put uh, your bio will be up on the website and uh, as will uh, how to contact you. Uh, mm -hmm. If uh, I'm, I'm assuming it's OK if people want to respond to this in any way mm -hmm. and contact you. Is that OK? Yeah, and, sure. Uh, I'd be, really be very uh, yeah, interested to hear people's uh, reactions and responses or if there's any questions or yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. So listen, I thank you so much for your time. I think this has been a super interesting uh, conversation and interview and probably has been so useful to so many people listening to just on the ground experience with what this has looked like for you. Uh, this version of pe uh, being in a peacekeeping mm -hmm. mission, mm -hmm. not necessarily a peace, well, building, oh, yeah. peacekeeping, ombudsman, all these different related terms. Um, but thank you so much. And I uh, uh, it'll be uh, really interesting. I hope sometime you'll come back on the show again and uh, add some more of your incredible wisdom and experience to what we're trying to do here. So thank well, you Well, so really, much. it's been my, my pleasure. And I also feel really honored that you wanted to include me. Uh, and um, no, and, and, it's, and, and, and good luck with it, because there's a lot of interesting uh, experience that you're collecting on this topic. Mm. And I think that, that that's really a great, great thing to do. So thanks for that, too, yeah. Susan. And I hope to okay. work with you soon again as well. I hope so, thanks. too, Gabrielle. All right. Thank All the you. best. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Peace Building Podcast. Check out thepeacebuildingpodcast.com for show notes and for more great information and resources. We like your feedback, comments, and suggestions. Please email them to susan at thepeacebuildingpodcast.com and come join us again for next week's episode for more great thinking, innovations, and ideas to take our planet to the next level.